When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is Idle Australians with James Madison and Osha Ginsberg. Exploring the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture. Toe on the theme song there. Welcome to Idol Australians. I'm James Mathers and that's Osha Ginsburg. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you, Jimmy? You have a cheeky grin on your face. I always do. That's just my face. That is my head. It's stuck on. You've got a, a, a natural my smile because when I get nervous, in fact, when I get scared, particularly in an argument, I have a frightened smile. And it infuriates people who are upset at me because I know I'm being... You think this is funny? Yeah. Is this funny, is it? Is, is this funny? No, it's not. But my face smiles. I have a smile in my eyes and my face goes, when I'm frightened, I smile. And it's it's. I have a bad. friend who when he, he does the same thing and he sometimes goes to couples counselling and when he's in couples counselling and he's very nervous and he's upset, <laughs> that nervous quivering smile breaks out and he gets torn to shreds. Oh, it's it's not served me it's not served me very well at all. It's terrifying. <laughs> Cuz I know it's like fuck I'm doing it. I've been hit for it. I've been hit. Mm. I've been hit cuz like fuck you bang. I'm like oh, I didn't mean to. Yeah, no, I've got a, a, a resting smile face. I also have resting stunned face as well. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm happy to be here. That's why I'm smiling, you know. I love hanging out with you. Any chance? I couldn't be more happy to be here. I am. I am absolutely loving doing this show with you every week. Not just because we get to pick around in the fertile soil of Australian history and Australian culture, but also I get to see your face every week, which I'm very grateful for. Oh, that's lovely. One of the um, one of the recurring themes in the show, obviously, is digging deep into part of. Australian history or pop culture that maybe hasn't been given the just deserves that it requires. Now, and, and one of those particular cultural establishments was Dolly Magazine. You ever um, come across Dolly Magazine as a young lad? I'll never forget the first time I read Dolly Magazine. I was uh, 14. I was wildly going out with a girl who was 15. And I know. I went to her house and she had Dolly Magazine and I flipped it open and I could not believe what I was seeing. I wasn't the pictures that I was interested in. It wasn't the – because I was always – you had sisters, so you know what it's about. Those magazines always smelled because they had samples in them. They had creams mm-hmm. and lotions and potions and fragrances. But there was a part of the magazine, Jimmy, that had a perforated edge and you had to unzip the perforated edge and unseal it. And inside this sealed section – it was almost like the Necronomicon, but for sexual health. I'm like, what is this thing that I'm reading? And it blew my mind and I would, I would read it. And it was incredible. That is Dolly Doctor. That is. That is That's Dolly right. Doctor. Because I would snicker and I would giggle, but I would, and secretly I'm like, but I really want to know this. 
<laughs> That's right. Dolly Doctor was part of Dolly Magazine since it launched in, in the 70s. It was this, this regular feature where thousands of young girls would write into the mag with their questions, their concerns, their confusions and their embarrassments about their bodies, about puberty, about sex, about sexuality. And every single month, a few of those letters and those questions would be chosen and answered. And they'd be answered by, yes, you guessed it, the Dolly Doctor, an actual doctor who would very delicately and honestly and understandingly and compassionately answer those questions and it was in many ways a, a cultural phenomenon it was it was the only place that you know young girls and many young boys could actually ask those questions that they were yeah. too scared or ashamed to yeah. pose anywhere else there was a heap of shame around sex and sexuality uh, which is kind of i guess the reason that that particular column uh, originated because it was like we have to find an outlet for this you've got uh, countless big sisters it's got to be at least six of them did you ever read their Dolly magazines? Um, I always thumbed through a Dolly when I came across one, absolutely, you know, and there was always a mix of, like, curiosity and titillation and naughtiness when you found them. But, you know, for a lot of people it was our first insight into having those questions answered honestly. Mm. Oh, Everyone has these thoughts. Everyone has these things that they want to know the answer to, but there was no place to go and and for all the craziness around dolly doctor you know were these questions made up or um how does someone not know this all the um crazy naivety that existed around it it served as a really important feature of young people's lives and for young australian girls it played a huge role i reckon now dolly finished up i think about five years ago and so now I imagine young people, for better or worst, search Google when they've got these sort yeah. of questions. But on this app, we thought we'd go straight to the source and talk to the Dolly Doctor herself. Yes, that's right. For 23 years, Melissa Kang was the Dolly Doctor. She has gone through thousands of questions and spent years working in adolescent health so who better to talk to about this absolute cultural powerhouse that was dolly doctor than the dolly doctor herself dr melissa kang thanks for joining us on idol australians hey thanks for having me it's so so good to be here when you think back now that you were the dolly doctor for so long are you surprised that it still has such cultural cachet when it comes up in conversation I actually am, and I don't think I had any idea how important Dolly Doctor was until after it died, really. So when the magazine closed, there was this outpouring of grief and nostalgia and lots of interest in talking to previous editors, for example, and, and some interest in talking to me as well because I'd been the most recent Dolly Doctor and the longest serving as well. And I don't think I really ever appreciated how important it was in the lives of young teenagers boys as well as girls actually in a time before the internet um access to information access to non-sensationalized down-to-earth information 
was very, very hard to come by. It was not in any literature aimed at men. All the girls in the magazines that were aimed at men were only ever always and ready up for sex and there was never anything wrong and everything was everything always led to sex and that was it. And all the magazines that that I had access to as a, as a teenage boy... But I remember the girls I, you know, would kind of hang out with when I was like 14, 15, they had these magazines, Dolly magazines, and I'd read the things and go, oh, what's this? Ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> and suddenly it was this kind of real conversation that wasn't to do with putting a, a, a woman's sexuality just in a different context that I'd never, I, it had just never been, I'd never seen it. The really unique thing about the whole column and especially the Q&A part of Dolly Doctor which which was always answered by a, a medical doctor but also over the years different people like psychologists and other specialists I think what was so unique is that every single question that ever got published and the thousands that didn't get published were absolutely real so they were really authentic and what we were seeing was this outpouring sometimes or just these kind of simple questions, questions about curiosity, right through to like, here's my whole life story that I'm going to pour out in this anonymous letter. And and they were absolutely coming from the heart, I suppose, the heart and minds of the readers. I'm sure, and I've had people tell me in latter years that, you know, they would get together sometimes at the back of the classroom and, and write some letters to Dolly Doctor, kind of make them up. But even that has, you know, even that has an authenticity about it because it's kind of a group of kids getting together going, oh, what can, what, you know, what can we write about that talks up our experience or talks up our curiosity? The magazine just never, ever had to embellish anything or make it up um, or, or change any of the questions really. So it's that time of life, I think, like no other. It's the only time that you're going to actually do that, I think, is, is kind of pour out your heart to an anonymous person and Although young people can do that now on the internet, I don't think it's the same. I think that they felt that the magazine and the kind of anonymous doctor behind it or health professional was a real person, like I was a real person and everyone before me was a real person. Yeah, there was this kind of security and safety in knowing that you were going to be read and, and answered by a credible person, but you didn't actually have to say who you were. You, you started in the early 90s, so before there was Google, before there was the internet, before there was a place where you could post questions online, and then you were the Dolly Doctor up until it finished, what, 2016, and so yeah. you would have been pre-internet and post-internet there. In those early days, where, apart from the Dolly Doctor question column, could girls go when they had things that they were worried about or unsure about or ashamed about or curious about, whether it was their, their bodies or sex or sexuality? There were a couple of books written. There were whatever you might have gotten from school, which was very variable. Um, and I, I, I didn't get anything at all. But even back in the 90s, there were certainly some some good teachers giving some good sex ed. But on the whole, there wasn't very much. So if you didn't have a parent or carer that you know you could talk to or who was comfortable having these conversations with you even if it was just about you know your changing body or your periods or your body hair or whatever it might be right through to obviously 
you know, feeling horny and having sex, if, if you didn't have an adult around you that you could confide in and talk about those things to, and you weren't getting very much in school, I mean, they're still not getting very much in school really overall to answer some of those really specific questions. Yeah, there wasn't very much. There was, there was I think, one or two books about puberty and there was, you know, there was Dolly Doctor and then, you know, Girlfriend as well when that came along. Um I think they they were basically where girls and boys turned to for that kind of information. How did you become the Dolly Doctor? Like, did you, is is it something that they thought you'd be suitable for, or you put your hand up because you thought oh, I've got a perspective here and an insight I'd love to share with young girls? Nothing nearly quite so strategic or, or carefully considered. It was just serendipity. I was working in adolescent medicine. That's the field I wanted to go into. But I was trained as a GP, so I had a job as a GP in a youth health service and I was working alongside specialists from the hospital in adolescent medicine up here in in Sydney and I met the GP who was the Dolly Doctor at the time. We worked together. She was sometimes, you know, saying, show me some of the questions, what do you think, how should we answer this? And then she said, after a few months, oh, look, I don't really want to do this anymore. Are you interested in taking over? And that's literally how it happened. Right place, right time. I I just never let it go. I didn't want to ever (laughs) give it up. (laughs) That is the key to anything. (laughs) (laughs) Did any of your patients ever find out? Any of your patients ever find out you were a Dolly Doctor? I never told a single patient. It was one of those things that I I was, I felt it, I had to have this real separation between my work in the consulting room with patients and that kind of part of me. I never wanted to be revealed by the magazine. There, there was, you know, a couple of times when they wanted to take my photo and put it in the magazine. So I let that happen a couple of times, but not my name, <laughs> just Dr. Melissa. But I think my colleagues around me, sometimes told the young people, you know, maybe thinking that that would reduce their anxiety, it might make them more interested in, I don't know, talking to me. But even when that happened, I never knew. Like it wasn't like the the patients themselves ever said, oh, my God, I just found out before I walked in that you're a Dolly doctor. They It was never spoken about. When I first got to Sydney, I, I got taken around to do press and stuff like that. I remember going to Dolly Magazine at, in 1999 and meeting a very young and very excited Mia Friedman, I think. Yeah. And they had lying around some similar magazines from other parts of the world. Germany um, was the one that I remember particularly. How do we rate as Australians for communicating about sex, sexuality, things that can go right, things that can go wrong? On an international level, are we way more prudish than we think we are? Uh, do we give our young people enough? Do we give them too much? It's just really variable. I think that overall as a society we're still pretty prudish talking to young people about sexuality and about sex. I think that's changing, especially at the moment. There's there's kind of all this demand for education now and information around consent, but that that requires talking about sex as well. I think that Australian sex education has just slowly and gradually improved. But the problem 
as that's happened is that we, we've got a good syllabus, we've got a good national curriculum and we've got, you know, good syllabuses in each of the states and territories. But the problem is having enough time in the curriculum for teachers to teach it, giving teachers enough support and training before they even become teachers. So, you know, when you're studying to be a teacher, what's that, about three years, um, it might take a bit longer depending on whether you do postgraduate study. There's a lot to learn in that period of time. So you don't necessarily get a lot of content around the sex education part. So unless you kind of go off and do more training, you're going to maybe either be limited in your knowledge or just be more comfortable talking about, you know, the kind of more medical scientific stuff like, you know, how how contraception works or how to go get tested for STIs. I think on the whole that's what people in general are more comfortable talking about rather than the things that kids really want to know about, like, you know, um, does it feel good or does it feel bad or why does it hurt or, you know, um, is it normal to feel horny all the time? Those are the kinds of things I think that teachers, but also parents and adults have trouble talking to kids about. On answering those questions, is something that was really obvious as you look back at it is that no matter how uh, naive or silly or confronting the questions you got from girls were, the answers were always really measured, really gentle, empathetic, and also asking them to to think about responsibility as well. How do you sort of manage that line? It was not always that simple. It was, it was quite difficult because I was so limited in the number of words I could write, but also the fact that the written word is not always the best way to answer a question. So if they're asking about their body parts, which was pretty common, I, I wanted to be able to draw a diagram, not that I can draw, but, you know, someone could do that for me, but I had to use words. So that was one kind of obstacle in a way. And then I I, might, I maybe sometimes was given up to 300 words, but usually it was around 200, 150 words. So it did make it really difficult. What I did learn over the years, and I think I learned it fairly early on, and it was partly from getting to know the different editors and hearing them talk about their relationship with their readers, was it was similar but different to having a, you know, having a young person sitting in front of me talking to me. I was talking to a real person, even though it was, you know, through a magazine and with very limited words. This was a genuine person with a genuine question, and I wanted to be able to write my answer as though I was having a conversation with them rather than, you know, writing a textbook or writing a classroom lesson. This was actually addressing one person, but at the same time being aware that there could have been up to half a million um, in its heyday, half a million young people reading this, including boys as well as girls, and, and therefore having this sort of weight of responsibility to a much, much broader audience so I guess in my answers, I tried to speak to the young person, answer their question and empathise with whatever they were expressing. That was often anxiety or fear or excitement, but also kind of going, okay, is there a message here that's really important based on this question that, that might benefit more than just this particular reader? So I guess I always approached each question that way. And I wrote every single answer again from the beginning even if it was the same question from the year before and the year before and the year before it was always like a new answer with a fresh fresh look at it because I felt like it was a new person I was talking to. You were the Dolly Doctor over a time of 
absolutely enormous change in our country and not only you know as a as a doctor you know new treatments show up new drugs show up new ways of dealing with things show up but for the large part pretty much up post world war 2 up to kind of like the early 90s things didn't really change that much then suddenly this thing called internet shows up suddenly cameras show up on phones suddenly social media is there like you were at the helm for all of this what changed for you did you get confronted as a doctor did you go oh my god i'm gonna have to learn about this now i'm gonna have to figure out how to talk about this and what stayed the same over that time because i was always at arm's length so basically the staff at dolly magazine would email me the questions i didn't necessarily see what changed in terms of how those questions were sent in the actual questions themselves didn't really change i mean i think essentially it's universal you know what we go through when we go through puberty and and we face the world as a young person so what's happening to my body what's happening to my feelings what's happening to my relationships either with my my parents and family or my peers my friends what's this feeling this crush i've got you know i i think i'm attracted to girls and boys or people of the same gender i don't know who i am those kinds of things never really changed what did change one thing that was a bit more subtle but i think probably was a real change was that the girls were using more explicit words and language to describe their genitals and i think maybe they, that was because there's there was more awareness of of that part of their body so they'd use the word like vulva which never appeared before they'd call the vulva the vagina and there you know there's obviously a difference so i think they were a bit more aware of their anatomy the other really big change was as a result of that their pubic hair disappeared so it was extremely rare in the early 90s in fact throughout most of the 90s it was extremely rare to get asked any questions about how do i remove pubic hair or i've shaved my pubic hair and i've got a rash just never saw anything like that and then they just started to trickle in and then they used to come in quite regularly i would call it an appearance of what I'd call genital body image issues for quite young teenage girls that wasn't there at all before. And we we certainly all, I mean, people that have researched this as well as me, you know, put this down to the availability and the access of online porn and seeing naked bodies and kind of going, oh, mine doesn't look like that. Um, is there something wrong with me? So that became something that was much more noticeable over the years. How big an impact is that, do you think, the exposure at increasingly young ages to pornography, both for young boys and young girls? I mean, we we don't really know where we're at. This is a new phenomenon, the fact that in the pocket of a 12-year-old is a device that can show them, like, very extreme hardcore pornography. Yeah, I think that amongst myself and amongst my colleagues who who look into this area of research with with adolescent sexual development there's been an increasing concern such that now because there is so much that's available and it's so accessible and it would seem to the people who study the content of it and I've just read sort of research papers on it that are concerned about the real portrayals of gender stereotypes of kind of dominant males aggressive males sexual violence coercion those kinds of things are becoming more 
commonly seen by young people. And the other thing is that young people are coming across online pornography at younger and younger ages. So the latest research quotes um, about almost half of 13-year-old boys and almost half of 15-year-old girls have seen online pornography, not always intentionally, but that's a lot of young people. And we're not talking to them about this stuff, you know, until maybe they're like in late high school. Oh, we better give them the talk about sex and porn. It's a bit too late, you know, by then. It's so confronting for parents to have this conversation, but this is where we are. What are the dangers of not having those conversations with your kids? I think if, again, a bit like the consent thing, maybe for all the wrong reasons, it we're kind of going, hang on a sec, maybe we should be feeling much more comfortable and much more open talking to kids from a much younger age about sexuality and sex kind of broadly so that when they are getting to that age where they are going to start being curious and then stumble maybe accidentally onto some stuff that might be really quite distressing for them. And that's been what some of the research has found as well is that the way young people respond and feel when they see pornography online is is variable. So some kind of are a bit titillated and excited. Others just find it kind of curious and interesting. And some get quite distressed because they're not really ready to see, you know, what a lot of what they see. So I think it is actually, you know, it behoves us as parents and adults in the world looking after kids to start talking to them about what, you know, kind of what, what sex is and that's really variable as well and why people might be why people want to have sex and what feels good about sex but the fact that just like in the movies where everything's kind of acting and fake there's this thing called pornography which is kind of like movies about sex that are really um, acted they're fake and they give you a very narrow view of what sex is and really sex is much much more than that and you know, and, and just start having those conversations without without it having to be anything too graphic, just kind of saying, look, this is acting, this is fake, it's, it's only showing a glimpse of what, you know, the whole experience that people can have. I think, we, I think we're capable of having those conversations with our kids. And do you think having those conversations will sort of affect or amend the, the dynamic that seems to be permeating amongst young men? Mm-hmm. Because I, a, a lot of feedback that I've heard from younger girls is that what's asked of them or expected of them by, you know, teenage boys is quite confronting. I see that occasionally in my clinical practice and I certainly have seen that in research that's been done among some people I know and, and other people whose research that I read is that there is a real gender divide in terms of what's seen as normal and okay and acceptable and girls just have to have to wear it you know and also that I think boys often also feel this pressure to perform and to they're expected to kind of do stuff and that take control and they're not necessarily comfortable with that either and I think that's a real danger for everybody obviously for young women because often what happens or what people think what what the couple thinks is supposed to happen is potentially violent potentially painful and certainly not not pleasant or pleasurable there's a lot of young men who don't particularly want to inflict anything that's uncomfortable or painful either but they may not necessarily know any different or know what what the alternatives are it's so messed up (laughs) it's so messed up yeah 
can you talk a bit about Dolly magazine in the sense that a lot of the emails and letters you would have got in would have been about girls who were unsure about their bodies, about their appearance, about fitting in. And then you're in a magazine that has a, a modeling contest and also has these, you know, sort of glorified versions of young teen girls, you know, mm. looking quite thin and attractive. Yeah. How do you sort of, how did you balance that or how did you, you reconcile those two things? I don't know that I ever did, James. I think that I was often writing in my answers that the very magazine that I was answering this question in was guilty of portraying quite narrow and stereotypical ideals of size and shape and appearance. So, you know, thin and fair-skinned and tall, all, all those kinds of stereotypical things and and saying that this was unrealistic. But the power of a visual image is is so strong that whatever words I wrote was not going to cut it. I think the editors would at different times have a spread about kind of, you know, all the different body shapes and sizes and have a lineup of girls of different heights and different body shapes to demonstrate how diverse, you know, the, a girl's body could be. And I think, yeah, you know, that goes part of the way, but it doesn't it doesn't ever really override that, you know, the cover girl, the model of the year, all that sort of stuff. So I was very aware of that and and was the magazine and Dolly Doctor were criticised at times for being hypocritical in that way and I, I had to agree really. It was just always an ongoing slight, you know, comfort for me. It I is, guess. It's kind of super-powered now. You know, I have mm. a, we have a 17-year-old. I see the things that she is exposed to for every, you know, body positive fit person that shows up in her TikTok or Instagram feed, she'll be fed, not necessarily like that she follows these people, but the algorithm will feed her another girl, you know, wearing a very skimpy piece of clothing on a beach. And it's very clear by the 4 billion likes the the very highly sexualized picture gets versus the little bit of shine that the, you know, healthy at any size one gets. It's like, well, how can you possibly compete against that? You're in a monthly magazine. This is a thing that every eight seconds feeds another picture, that feeds another vision. It's slowly hardwiring our brains in lots of ways. I mean, I, I don't have any research or data to prove this, but I feel like the, you know, the kind of levels of anxiety that we see, not just in young people, but yeah, those images that keep at us and the I think it sort of creates a a different level of stress, baseline stress, than I experienced when I was young. I know parents try their best to kind of say you need downtime, we need to put the phones away, but it's pretty hard to do. All the research that I've been looking at lately seems that the rates of anxiety and self-harm and suicide and depression amongst young girls and, and to a degree young boys, but particularly young girls, seems to be increasing at a rate that we we haven't seen before what's at the heart of all that do you think it's social media or do you think like you're saying that the baseline stress is is elevated for for young girls today more so than ever before i think it's really complex and i i wish there was a kind of simple formula or a simple way to understand it but i think some of it is to do with the fact that you know, it's normal for adolescents to compare themselves to their peers. They do that all the time. We we all did that. But the fact that they they do that 
within split seconds all the time through those things like, you know, how many likes they get or posts that come up or, yeah, just images that they see that that get thrown at them. It's kind of like hyper-stimulation, you know, like there's just constant stimulation, whether it's visual, whether it's what you hear. I think that that increases our, just our baseline stress levels. And then also there's this kind of need to feel like you fit in and that you're the same as everybody else, which is very normal in adolescence, but it's it's really amplified because of those frames of reference around them that are constant and 24-7. The other thing I think, and, and I think this is something that we could try to do a lot more about if we can, is I think young people are getting much less sleep and that's because of having access to devices in bed at night and sometimes they use that to help them go to sleep but in fact it doesn't work that way there's some science that has been looking at that so there could be some biological reasons as well but I think sleep deprivation is a real problem I think there's also just lots of pressures in the world for young people these days you know to study to finish school and they might not be that academic some of them to go to university to get a job there's just a lot of pressures on young people that I don't think were as this one as many of them when I was younger. I got the great pleasure of reading your new book with Yumi, Welcome to Consent, as a as a PDF. It wasn't quite finished. Some of the illustrations weren't there, but I remember just reading it and just being just so completely blown away and, and wishing that something like that was out when I was a teenager. How can we help our young our young men as well and the young young boys go through life with a little more equipped than I guess the people of my generation? Yeah, that's such a good question, Asha. And I think, you know, I, I have a son and I remember thinking I'm going to teach him right from the get-go that it's it's really good to talk, to, to be aware of your feelings and to be comfortable talking about them. I think it starts very, very young. It certainly doesn't, you don't have to wait till puberty for, to start having conversations and interacting with your kids, I guess in just a much more conscious and mindful way that actually if we think about emotions and that, you know, there aren't that many emotions in in the human experience, but if we think about all the different emotions that there are and helping our children find the language to express those emotions right through from being, you know, over the moon euphoric and couldn't be happier right through to feeling, you know, really sad, really scared, really worried and not being afraid to uh, have those feelings and then kind of express them and talk about them. And in the book about consent, you know, I, I feel like, I mean, there's lots of almost like fundamental principles of consent that we tried to weave throughout the book. But I think in some ways at the heart of it is this awareness, self-awareness of your emotions and how those emotions make you think and how those thoughts make you behave and trying to sort of break that down and break that cycle. Because when it comes to consent and particularly around, you know, intimate interactions with another person, you know, you might be a boy that thinks, oh, good, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get pashed tonight or I might get a blowjob tonight or whatever it is they might be excited about. It's, they, there's also, I think, a lot of trepidation. That's been my experience working with adolescent boys. That there's also some trepidation about that. So teaching them how to recognise those different feelings can happen way outside of any kind of sexual context. That's a really simple answer to your question, but I think that's a really good place to start is, is to make young boys know that it's okay to have whatever they're feeling and to figure out how to express that and manage that when it's causing them harm or somebody else harm or distress. 
what do you think surprises you these days when you speak to young people? Maybe something that you wouldn't have heard 20 years ago or just things that are popping up that are new on your radar that you maybe think, wow, this is um, this has happened very quickly. I guess sometimes how young people talk to me as a doctor in the clinical room when we're discussing sexual health or sexuality is about things like, yeah, look, sexting and sending nudes to either the person they're in a relationship or just because they want to. I guess it surprises me, not because there's anything necessarily wrong with it, but because I'm also aware how self-conscious adolescents are at this age about their bodies. On the one hand, you're telling me how much you don't like how asymmetrical your boobs are or you don't like your stretch marks or whatever. And then on the other hand, you're like really confidently sending off these, you know, these nude pictures to your to your partner. I just find that really interesting. I just find I find young people really interesting. A friend of mine, she's uh she's in her thirties and she dates she, she dates younger guys. You know, she's like, oh just I just get sent pictures of dicks. Like all yeah. the time, and um, so brilliantly, she she saves them. And if she gets if she ever gets an unsolicited one, um, mm-hmm. she just sends them back a picture of someone else's dick and go, "Oh, I thought this is the game we were playing." <laughs> That's great. <laughs> would that be common for most blokes under, say, I don't know, twenty five, that they would have sent a dick pic to a girl? Uh, I don't really know. I I think it's fairly common. I mean, from what some of the young women tell me, and I think there's been there, there has been research in Australia that's asked young people if they've sent and received nude pictures. That is crazy. I'm sure I, I'm so old. I'm I feel really old when I hear stuff like that because it feels really shocking, you know, to know how prevalent it is and how quickly something becomes normalized that's what i'm yeah. i'm really interested in and 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 kind of surprised by how quickly something that initially we would have felt like is outside the the spectrum of what's acceptable or is a little bit too vulgar or or, or too over sexualized becomes normalized very very quickly and if you're not of that generation if you question it or if you're like hey is this this an appropriate path to be heading down i don't feel like often you can verbalize those concerns without pushback at being you know out of touch or a wowser or a fuddy-duddy you know it's 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 hard to offer anything of value to that generation. Yeah, and I think we're expected to have an opinion straight away too about what we think about this. And I think for me, my career has been about learning from adolescents and young people what the world is like for them. So for me, it's just like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I mean, obviously I have an opinion when I think there's been a violation or when a young person's distressed about something, that's very clear. Yeah, when I hear these kinds of experiences and stories related to me that are completely normalised, as you say, by the young people, it's like, okay, this is not something I was aware of before or that ever happened in my experience, so let me try and understand that. And I think that's always the most powerful way to to kind of understand these changes that happen socially and culturally, particularly for young people, because it kind of changes with every half a generation, really. You reckon the kids are going to be all right? I think the kids are definitely going to be all right. Yeah, it, they're the ones who change the world, you know. <laughs> That's what we're seeing now with these young women leading the charge around 
Me Too and consent education and um, young, young people have always been the ones to change the world, I think, for the better. <laughs> Maybe she's right. Ah, amazing, amazing to chat to her. Yeah. I mean, she's super positive. Yeah. About the kids. The kids are going to be all right. I mean, you've got a 17-year-old. I've got young girls and I feel concerned all the time. I'm like... Yeah. It feels like technology is running the show and this hypersexualization means that they're going to be thrust into a world that is going to sort of chew them up. I wonder though if like the feeling that we have around the young girls in our, in our lives is that the same feeling that the generations two above us had about when they watched the first Madonna videos going oh my god if they watch these videos they will just all become whores. Like no, that's just you know what I mean? Like, are we just being challenged by the technology and the reflection of culture at the time? Or, like, I wonder, is it just the same as that? Like, oh, God, they can't be listening to this pop music on the radio. They'll have teenage sex parties, you know, from the stuff that used to happen in the 50s and 60s. Is it the same? I mean, an element maybe is, but at the same time, you know, you look at those rates of self-harm and of anxiety, of depression. Yeah, you're right, yeah. And they seem to be going up and up and up every Mm. year. And I think what Melissa was talking about is real. If the baseline anxiety is going up and up and up and so the water that they're swimming in becomes ever more toxic, it's hard to imagine a place where even though what we might see as a bit of wowserism now, is an acceptable or tolerable place for young people to be growing up in. You know what she needs? And give her a show. She needs a show. She needs a show like every week. You can't ask that. You know that you can't ask that show? She needs her own show. Women write in. Women zoom in anonymously. Dr. Kang takes care of it. This is the Dr. Kang podcast. You should start it with her. I've got enough going on. <laughs> Why don't you start it with it? I've got enough. Don't have all that shit on it. <laughs> Whoever starts a podcast with Dr. Melissa Kang, it's going to be amazing. But this podcast particularly was produced by Bree Steele, James Matheson, sneakily ate snacks while we interviewed the Delhi doctor. <laughs> I haven't eaten for a while. <laughs> Really delicious snacks. Audio production was by Daryl Misson. Music was by Toe Hyder. Follow him on Twitch. If you need us, idleaustralians at gmail.com. The best thing you can do for us, uh, besides sending us unmarked bills in the post, is to tell a friend, tell someone about the show, rate and review the show wherever you can, and we'll see you here next week. I don't know what their sign-off was. I can't remember what it was. Send snacks. Send snacks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.